Hi, my name is Dr. Sean Goodman. I'm the Associate Head of Cardiology at St. Michael's Hospital and a Professor and Heart and Stroke Foundation of Ontario Chair uh, at the University of Toronto. Uh, and together uh, with uh, me today is Dr. Judy Liu, who's a clinical fellow and uh, the Barbara Streisand Women's Heart Disease uh, uh, Fellow uh, at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center. So Judy, thanks very much for uh, joining me today. Um, we have uh, just recorded uh, the first module uh, for an exciting initiative uh, that the two of us uh, are together uh, with uh, doctors Atina Cater, Chafna Cox, and Jean Gregoire as the planning committee have helped to put together uh, entitled The Canadian Initiative to Reduce Residual Risk, Game Changers in Dyslipidemia Management. And our module um, that we've just recorded is, uh, is entitled Current Dyslipidemia Management in Canada, uh, What Do the Guidelines Say? And we, of course, have the updated Canadian Cardiovascular Society 2021 guidelines um, uh, that, uh, Judy, you uh, nicely uh, uh, presented. And I encourage, of course, everybody who's listening uh, to this uh, podcast uh, to, uh, to check us out uh, on, uh, on, the, on the full presentation of the module uh, that will be available uh, on the web. Uh, but uh, g given that not everybody will have uh, 40 minutes to do that, um, let's spend a few minutes uh, uh, talking about uh, some of the important components uh, that we covered off uh, in the first module. Yes, thank you so much, Dr. Goodman. It was a pleasure to work with you and your team during this uh, module for dyslipidemia management in Canada. I think to help the audience kind of get a flavor of what to come in the 40 minutes, uh, I do have some questions uh, to potentially help summarize our module. And my first question to you is, you know, can you summarize for the audience what are some contributors to residual risk and some tools that we can use in our practice to assess for risk of recurrent events? Great question. And this is something that we face, uh, those of us who are cardiovascular practitioners uh, managing ACVD, atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease patients, uh, this is a day-to-day -day, uh, challenge. Uh, and so there are multiple factors, as, as you know, uh, that contribute to residual risk. Uh, of course, uh, we, we focused in particular on LDL cholesterol, uh, and that's because uh, LDL cholesterol was shown, for example, amongst other uh, lipoproteins, abnormal lipoproteins like apolipoprotein B and uh, ApoA1 uh, by Dr. Salim Youssef and colleagues as part of the impressive international interheart study uh, to be uh, the greatest contributor, one of the, the greatest risk uh, features uh, to the risk of myocardial infarction. Of course, there's other uh, things uh, beyond uh, those specific uh, lipids. Uh, we we um, know that LP little a is a contributor. We know that triglyceride elevation is at least a marker, uh, not clear still whether it is um, by itself a causative factor in residual risk, but certainly managing patients who have elevated triglycerides as a marker. Um, we, we now have a study, for example, that shows that we can reduce the residual risk. And then, of course, there's the traditional uh, risk factors that uh, clinically that folks are aware of, uh, elevated blood glucose, so diabetes, um, uh, hypertension, particularly untreated hypertension, um, obesity is unfortunately sort of a growing epidemic, uh, uh, tobacco use. Um, uh, there are differences of 
of course, uh, in, in sex and gender that influence residual risk. Uh, and, and maybe the one of the sort of holy grails here um, that I should also mention is inflammation. And uh, that's a really interesting uh, one because uh, it, 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 uh, it interacts uh, clearly with uh, LDL, cholesterol, and the other uh, lipoproteins that uh, have a direct causative effect uh, on the in the walls of the arteries and residual risk in atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. Um, but uh, targeting, uh, uh, and, and we've targeted uh, inflammation uh, to some extent at the same time as we target LDL cholesterol lowering uh, with things like statin. Uh, but we know that beyond LDL lowering, for example, uh, that uh, inflammation itself uh, can uh, be a um, and probably need some further modification. Um, most of those therapies aren't yet ready for prime time, um, but there's some interesting recent studies, for example, with colchicine, which is presumably an anti-inflammatory. Um, and in the same way that uh, treating, you know, sort of gouty arthritis, um, maybe uh, treating the uh, the inflammation in the coronary arteries um, and the cerebral uh, vasculature uh, with an anti-inflammatory uh, may have a promise to reduce a residual risk as well. And, and, and sorry, the second part of your question, you know, what kind of tools can we use? I, th I think what we've typically done uh, is we kind of look at, at the end of the bedside and we make sort of a rough guesstimate, maybe based on the patient's age, um, uh, you know, how sort of frail looking they are, um, uh, you know, whether their blood pressure is elevated, et cetera, um, uh, whether, whether they're at a higher uh, compared to more moderate risk. Um, uh, but I think we've learned over the course of time that there are a number of risk scores, risk tools that we can use uh, that do a better job than we do uh, of sort of weighting those risk factors, many of which I've already mentioned, um, and uh, can uh, sort of spit out in, in rapid fire fashion on our smartphones um, or, or online uh, very quickly, um, uh, can spit out um, an estimated sort of residual uh, uh, risk uh, event rate. Um, and so that can uh, uh, sort of uh, put us in touch uh, and, and, and twig us to, you know, what are going to be the highest risk individuals uh, where we have to be particularly aggressive um, and get the biggest bang for the buck, uh, both clinical and, and from a cost-effectiveness financial perspective uh, by, for example, lowering LDL cholesterol further beyond something like a high-intensity statin therapy if a patient isn't at uh, LDL cholesterol threshold. That's awesome. Thanks so much, Dr. Goodman. And another question to you is, you know, as you mentioned, you know, LDL is the most important modifiable risk factor to reduce future cardiovascular events in patients who have established ASCBD. You know, if I was having a conversation with one of my patients, what are three key points that I could tell them regarding the role of LDL in residual risk that would sway them to go on lipid lowering therapy? Great question, because of course, nobody wants to start taking pills or uh, every two to four week injections, uh, uh, unless it's really going to make a difference uh, in their outcomes. And, uh, and so I think what I typically uh, start off the conversation with a patient around is uh, that indeed, uh, LDL cholesterol is elevated in, uh, you know, in, in your situation. Um, and we know that this is a, a direct cause of hardening of the 
arteries, um, uh, certainly in the heart arteries uh, where I focus all of my time and attention, but in the arteries uh, throughout the body. So the risk of having a heart attack or a stroke um, or developing um, uh, in the lower uh, uh, extremities and the lower limbs, developing narrowings or blockages that can uh, uh, cause uh, uh, terrific damage and maybe lead to amputation, um, you know, those types of risks. And of course, all of them can contribute to an increased risk of death. Uh, we obviously want to try to lower those risks in you. And so uh, the most obvious thing to do is to lower the LDL cholesterol. And of course, um, we look at lifestyle modification, um, at what people are taking in in their diet, um, and trying to exercise, stopping smoking, um, and, uh, you know, healthy behaviors. Uh, but we have to recognize that even when one is doing all of those good things, most of the cholesterol, the LDL bad cholesterol that's floating around in the bloodstream uh, that can go to the heart arteries uh, and, and cause a heart attack um, is made by our livers. Um, it's not uh, mostly what we take in and what we ingest. And so um, we may have inherited a tendency uh, to having uh, high levels or higher levels of LDL cholesterol than our arteries like. Um, and uh, so uh, that's the bad news. Uh, but the good news is, is that we've got some uh, very safe, uh, and very well tolerated and very effective LDL cholesterol lowering therapies that uh, can uh, not only further lower the uh, uh, LDL cholesterol levels, uh, but can actually lead to um, a lack of progression of narrowing in the arteries um, can maybe even shrink the narrowing uh, that exists in the arteries to some extent, uh, extent um, and uh, can also lead to lower risk of having you know heart attacks, strokes, and and, and dying from uh, those particular conditions. And so uh, it's not a failure on a patient's part uh, by having to go on a medication. Um, uh, it's something in many cases that they've inherited. Um, and again, we have really excellent therapies uh, that we can. Uh, utilized to try to get that LDL cholesterol and we'll kind of work together uh, to get that uh, level down really as low um, as we can possibly go. And I think, uh, you know, I've also, uh, Judy, in the last little while uh, taken an approach that I've done for the last sort of 10 years as it relates to the management of hypertension, uh, right? We, we know that lowering, uh, uh, you know, systolic elevation of blood pressure uh, can lower the risk of stroke and, and dying and other cardiovascular disease. Um, and we put patients on antihypertensive therapies, but we recognize now that um, to get to the levels of, of blood pressure that we would uh, uh, know would confer the, uh, the greatest benefit and lower that risk, um, we often need uh, about three uh, antihypertensive medications uh, to um, make sure patients tolerate that, um, but uh, also that we can, uh, in combination, get that level of blood pressure down, uh, that number down as low as possible, and that, of course, translates into outcome benefits. And so I'm starting to have conversations right out of the gate with patients with elevated um, uh, lipid levels, LDL cholesterol, and established atherosclerotic uh, cardiovascular disease, and saying, you know, we're going to start off with a statin, absolutely. Um, but I sort of, uh, you know, warn them or, or give them a heads up uh, that in some patients, it takes two or three medications um, uh, to lower LDL cholesterol specifically. 
to get them down to the levels uh, that are going to make uh, a big difference in terms of uh, getting the LDL low, but more importantly, uh, reducing substantially the risk of cardiovascular events. And that then hopefully at least uh, opens the door for further conversations um, when they come back and, you know, maybe uh, one out of five patients uh, on a high intensity statin with atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease uh, won't be uh, at, uh, at CCS uh, LDL cholesterol uh, thresholds. They'll be above that threshold and will require uh, additional therapy like azetamibe and or PCSK9 inhibitor. That's excellent. Thank you so much, Dr. Kuhn. Yeah, uh, thanks. Uh, so, so let me ask you now, because you, you covered in our module really nicely um, uh, the uh, CCS uh, 2021 dyslipidemia guidelines uh, and, um, uh, you know, something that's emphasized in the latest guidelines that were just released uh, in, uh, in March of, of 2021. Um, and, and I think it's good to emphasize again uh, uh, today in our conversation in secondary prevention in patients with established ASCVD, who are those that might benefit uh, uh, to the largest degree by further intensive of statin therapy with uh, the addition of a PCSK9 inhibitor? Yes, that's a really good question. And I do address that in our 40 minute module, but you know, from the recent analysis of the Fourier and the Odyssey outcome trials, they did identify a subset of patients who had established CVD who were at very high risk and who derived the largest absolute benefit from evolucumab and alrucumab. And so these patients include those who have a, you know, recent ACS, or those who had AC, ASCVD with additional cardiovascular risk enhancers. And these risk enhancers included things like diabetes, metabolic syndrome, polyvascular disease, symptomatic uh, peripheral arterial disease, you know, recurrent MIs, prior cabbage, or if they had an LDL that's greater than 2.6 millimoles per liter heterozygous FH, or LP little A that was greater than 60, you know, all of these patients um, were shown to be at very high risk. And so if you give them additional PCSK9 therapy, they had uh, rapid and large reductions in LDL and significant reductions in CVD events. That's great. So that, that's a nice list of really uh, easily identifiable uh, sort of clinical uh, features or, uh, uh, that w and, and lab values and LDL cholesterol, uh, for example, uh, that, that uh, clinicians uh, can, uh, uh, can sort of reach uh, for, the, for, the, for the bigger gun, um, uh, particularly when statin therapy isn't enough to get uh, to that LDL threshold. So while we're on that uh, uh, topic of LDL threshold, uh, what do the CCS uh, 2021 Lipidemia guidelines tell us um, what threshold uh, should we consider uh, starting um, azetamibe, the cholesterol absorption inhibitor, um, uh, versus starting the PCSK9 inhibitor um, based on the patient population that you just nicely described? Yeah, another really good question. Um, so, you know, there's a really nice figure in the guidelines about treatment intensification approach for patients with ASCBD. And so for those on maximally tolerated statin dose who continue to have an LDL greater than or equal to 1.8, the guidelines do recommend intensification with azetamibe, PCSK9, or both. And so the nuances uh, really comes down to, you know, being a, a clinician who really understands the therapy is that uh, just because you have greater than, sorry, so the nuances comes down to when your LDL is greater than 1.8, there are different pathways. If your LDL is greater than 2.2 or 20% above the threshold, you know, azetamibe can really only lower your LDL so much. And so in that case, 
uh, patients may benefit from PCSK9 um, as the initial second line therapy. But if their LDL is between 1.8 to 2.2, then you can consider azetamibe and then with further follow-up, if it's still not at threshold, uh, then again, add the PCSK9. So, you know, in summary, it, it is a bit confusing with all these numbers, but the, the goal is, that the point is that, you know, threshold greater than 1.8, consider intensification. But if you're at 20% above threshold, greater than 2.2 millimoles per liter, and then consider PCSK9 initially. If you're between 1.8 to 2.2 millimoles, then definitely can consider azetamide first. Great, thank you so much. So I hope we've uh, uh, intrigued our audience uh, enough to uh, go to the website and, and uh, enjoy the, the uh, entirety of the uh, first module um, in this uh, uh, program, uh, again, entitled Canadian Initiative to Reduce Residual Risk, Game Changers in Dyslipidemia Management. Uh, again, I'd like to thank uh, Dr. Judy Liu for uh, joining me today uh, on the first module, Current Dyslipidemia Management in Canada, some discussions around what did the 2021 CCS guidelines say. Thanks very much. Mm -hmm.